Welcome, everybody, to the Celebrity Hour podcast. I'm Brian Kluger, and we have an amazing, fantastic show today. We have a legendary world heavyweight champion of music, film composing, and jazz guitar coming to the show today, Mr. Joseph Loduca. Welcome to the show. I've never been in a wrestling ring before. Thank you for inviting me. You're very oh, welcome. Based on that introduction. To, to the squared circle of music, we are going to have an amazing time. We're going to be talking about your, your new film, Hereafter, who we talked with Harry Greenberger recently, but also we're going to get into the scores that, that really put you on the map, including The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Brotherhood of the Wolf, The Staircase Murders, Man with the Screaming Brain, Chucky Films, Spartacus, the list goes on. But first, like in the movie, The Sound of Music, we've got to start at the very beginning. Joe, where did it all begin for you in music? Was, was, it, was there a certain song on the radio? Did your parents play you something on the turntable that just sparked that firework for music? Where did it all begin for you in music? You have to go back to the very beginning. Boy, I, I would just say that music has always been in my life. It's always affected me. And it's always something that I just got. I, I could understand it. I could hear it. Um, I could reproduce it. I could mimic. There's pictures of me uh, on the table at two and three on, a, on, a, on the dining room table singing songs. So, I mean, it's, it just has always been a part of my being. And uh, at some point, uh, midway through my second year of college, I, I actually couldn't deny it and said, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to follow this. I'm going to do this wherever it leads me. So <laughs> that's where it led. So do you remember the first instrument you picked up? Um, well, actually my first instrument was voice because I was in the boys choir at church. Okay. Yeah. That will do. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Until my voice changed and then he had to kick me out. <laughs> was that something you wanted to do or is that something your parents said, like, you got to go do something? I didn't, uh, I didn't resist. I enjoyed it. You enjoyed yeah. it. So voice yeah. and then, and then you know, getting into, you know, maybe middle oh, school. Yeah that, led, yeah, that led to piano. That led, that led to, to piano, piano and it led to cello. And then that led to rock and roll. To rock you and know. roll. Yeah, because once once that all hit and I was in middle school, high school, um, that was really my focus in terms of music. Um, I had a lot more fun being in bands, making up bands, playing in bands, wearing the grooves off of vinyl records because that's how you learned back in those days and uh yeah it was great fun where um where was the first place you played in a band and what was the band name called well that's very funny um i was in several but i think the first band when we were in middle school we had a band called the condors and I think our first gig for $25 a piece was at a Friday night fish fry. <laughs> uh, and yeah, yeah. And we had, it was, it was great because we had a band mom 
we had a band mom who bought a milk truck and that was our, that's how we transported the gear. We won a battle, a couple of battle of the band concerts, which got us our gear. Um, and then in high school, I joined another band called the Weekend Freedom Machine, which <laughs> sounds great for a band in the 60s, but actually it was the, was the slogan for Toro Lawnmowers. <laughs> so our band, uh, our band manager would leave cards, you know, you'd have business cards and you'd leave them on windshields in the parking lot in Detroit at that. We were, I was raised in Detroit. And at that time, because of the White Panthers and other movements going on, the FBI had a, had a certain focus on the underground music scene in Detroit. So I remember an agent calling my mom uh, on the telephone, asking to speak with the uh, with Joe, who's you know whose number was on the business card. And uh, <laughs> my mom was puzzled, handed me the phone, and yeah, yeah, you can talk to him. And uh, so he said, "Is this Joe?" And I, yes, sir. <laughs> so he realized he'd been barking up the wrong tree. Oh my, and I've got to say that it doesn't get more rock and roll than traveling around in a milk truck. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it worked. it worked. It worked, and you were playing guitar in all of this? Yeah, I, I was playing guitar, I sang, played harmonica, and uh, we were cute kids who could play, basically. And so we would be, at that time, it was a very, very vibrant club scene so this is prior to say bob seeger and ted nugent in the mc5 and rick derringer becoming national phenoms so we would be like the first warm-up act when they're just bob seeger and ted nugent well not together but those would yeah. be the, those would be the headliners at these clubs okay but we were we were you know we were underage. So we'd be like, when they first opened the club, we'd play our set and they'd come on at 11 or whatever. You know? Oh, oh my. Did you ever get to cross paths or with, with uh, well, Bob or Ted? Kind of, sort of, but you know, we didn't, it isn't like we hung out. We were in the same space. I can say that. Oh, yeah. you were the opening act yeah. for them. Well, we got to be, yeah, but we would get, you know, but you know, obviously we're very much imprinted by the antics. So, and were were you doing original music or doing covers? Some, or some, but mostly we'd be we'd do a lot of covers, but then rearrangements as well, you know. Okay. Blues and British influenced, and yeah, all of that. And and if you don't mind me asking, do you still keep in touch with the original bandmates of the Condors or? <laughs> no, it was it was a different life. We've all gone our separate ways. All and, right. And, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's a, that's that's great to hear. And so you moved on and you went to the University of Michigan and uh, I believe New York. And is that where your love of film and music uh, collided? No, I, I moved to New York to basically pursue a career in music as a, as a working musician, um, thinking that, you know, going to the Apple was a, would be a great place to test my metal, uh, especially because I really wanted to play jazz. And um, I wanted to study particularly with a, uh, a guitarist composer, uh, a man named Ralph Towner, 
who was really great at, uh, who is a fantastic musician, uh, besides being a great composer, is a pianist and also uh, plays fingerstyle on, you know, acoustic, uh, classical and, and 12 string guitar. And that was very much something I was into at the time because there weren't a lot of uh, jazz programs. There were a few in the country. There weren't a lot of places to study classical guitar and one of them happened to be in Michigan. Uh, so I was very lucky there. There was, it was one of the few classical guitar programs. So you'd really, for example, for example, at the University of Michigan where I started college, uh, there was no classical guitar program there would be you know there'd be no way to study that instrument and be part of the music school uh so it worked out very very well and then from that like i said i, I really wanted to see what it was like in new york city which was great which is a great experience but film composing really didn't begin when i returned and was introduced to uh, sam Raimi and bruce campbell and rob tappert and that was that that was in Michigan. And I believe did you did you come across them by just word of mouth or did they or they their studio or they were working next to a magic store, right? Where you can perform magic or whatnot? Yeah, I mean I, I came back as a working musician, but still still I hadn't finished school yet. So I was studying composition uh and, and performance, but still you know, playing, playing for a living, really, um, at nights and weekends, and got into doing some studio work and met a producer who was also a filmmaker, who was also involved in helping uh, Robin, Sam, and Bruce raise some money to finish Evil Dead, and he made the introduction, the fortuitous introduction. And from then, it was like peas in a pod, it seems like. Y'all just became instant friends, correct? Well, I think the idea was we were both just at the beginning of our careers. Um, you know, Sam and, and Bruce had a lot of experience making Super 8 films and, and pursuing this as a very, very serious hobby. Um, and we we're embarking on their first feature. And I was seriously studying music and, and about to, you know, try to launch after uh, receiving my credentials. And so we went on that part of the journey together. That, that's pretty impressive. And that's just great that it, there, must, there has to be some magical chemistry between y'all because you've worked so many times over the years uh, together. And what do you think that spark was? Maybe when you first walked in with Bruce and Sam and Rob that you're just like, okay, I might do this one film, but then something about being together with everyone, we have worked together on multiple projects. Was there that spark? Well, I think that, I think the spark was, um, Fortunately, I had enough musical chops, even though I had to really figure out with very primitive tools how to make music to picture because it wasn't like it was now with digital files and DAWs and such. Um, 
but also I think there was the idea that I didn't realize that I had the ability to understand how to apply music to a, a story. Um, and again, I had gone to university actually to pursue comparative literature. And so I did have a literature background. I did have kind of a storytelling background, but I didn't realize that. And I suppose the spark was um, for me, the ability to look at an image in a story and be affected by it and to come up with something that um, would enhance the vision of the, the storyteller. So, you know, I got lucky. I got lucky. I was developing a set of skills and really wasn't aware of how to apply them um, in terms of, you know, I didn't grow up in LA. Um, there were very, at that point, I think there might've been a film scoring program at Eastman, certainly one at North Texas, but they were very, very early stages. I don't even think the one at USC or UCLA, the ones there had been created yet. So you really had to be raised in the business to realize that this was even a career path. And, you know, in Detroit, that really wasn't the, op you know, really wouldn't have been a career option. It would have never crossed my mind. Of course, it's so different nowadays, as you're certainly well, well aware. Right, right. Uh, and so I guess with your first uh, film or with the first Evil Dead film, how have things changed for you personally in regards to making music with those sort of old school, those vintage toys uh, of your craft to now? Because I would have, and ha did, uh, did Sam Raimi actually just give you free range, like go for it, do it, or did he have a lot of input over the years as well as Bruce? Or were you just like, okay, I'm going to go in this. I'm going to get some nature sounds. I'm going to get these orchestral sounds for this. How did that? How did that all come together for your first time? Well, I think uh, I've been really fortunate over the years to work with people who really love music. So that's great <laughs> to have them as collaborators. Sam loves music. Um, you know, you've, you've met Harry. Harry loves music. Um, Dean Devlin, who I've worked with for many years, loves music. Um, you know, Rob Tappert on the television series loves music. And while none of them claim to be able to speak a musical language, they certainly understand and put a lot of time and effort into the stories that they make. So um, it's been my job to just basically try to make that translation. So for example, uh, in Evil Dead, um, it was Sam that turned me on to a lot of Bernard Herrmann and, and John Williams, because I hadn't really, it isn't as though I knew that music from the movies, but I didn't, wasn't really paying attention to it as such. Um, you know, I was, I was learning jazz, that vocabulary. I was studying classical music and composition. So, you know, I could see, Bernard Herrmann's influence from Wagner or from Debussy. And I could see, you know, I could, I would make that sort of leap. And um, 
So Sam was a big fan of that music. As it turned out for Evil Dead, you know, we had a limited budget. So it was simple. Okay, well, I'll have five string players and I'm going to overdub them. And once, and, that's, and whatever else I can make, whatever else I can, noises I can make, that's going to be the film score. And that's going to have to be it. And so that was, uh, you know, as you know, the wonderful thing about composition is you set your limitations and run with them. Oh, oh, and it, it, it worked perfectly. <laughs> worked perfectly. And then, you know, you've, you went on to do uh, Hercules and Xena and Jack of All Trades, which working with the same people. Is there a difference or a proclivity you have to working on feature films to television shows? Is there more of a story to tell with a long-running TV show or a, the sh a two-hour span of a film that you prefer? Well, it, I suppose I suppose it depends. Uh, I think that very often, obviously with film, you, you're drawing out a single story. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, you've got more landscape, if you will. Um, and you have the opportunity perhaps to create uh, an entire world, a complete compositional world, if you will. Um, and with television, you're beholden to the story. Um, things are gonna move faster. Um, you've got to be more on your toes. Um, and it depends, you know, I only recently, for example, because I've been spending more time in Los Angeles, do some music for sitcoms, which was fun, but that's, you know, that's, that's a three pound weight as opposed to barbells, you know, uh, that you would get on a show like, Ash versus Evil Dead or Hercules or Xena or that, you know, or, uh, you know, action Spartacus, action oriented, you know, where you're going to have major fiends, major drama, major operatic content. So uh, my diet has been in, in shows that have a lot of music in them and usually require a very big palette. That, that's... Uh... It, it, I don't know if I've answered the question, Brian. No, I'm sorry. No, you have. You have. And I I like that you have that ability uh, to go from something like Mystery Glacius to like Brotherhood of the Wolf or either, either Curse of Chucky and even uh, the new film Hereafter, uh, which is, you know, you're drawing from a lot of elements and you put them together so flawlessly. Um, is there a moment in time when you're working on a score where you just kind of step outside your body and look down and you're like, yep, I got it. This is it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that that's the, uh, other than, you know, hearing the orchestra play back the music for the first time, I think that the, the satisfaction in the work is that moment where you've, you think you've got it, you know, uh, and then it's even better when your collaborator feels the same way. Uh, but I think it is, it's solving, you know, finding a way to put yourself in a creative zone to solve that particular problem. Cause it's a blank page every day. Right. No, it is, it is. It, is there a particular place you personally like to be, whether it be on stage with a guitar 
or conducting in front of an orchestra or being behind a computer and making the film music to its finish? Is there a particular place you would rather be? Well, I think the, I think that the, it's two sides of a coin, really. Uh I think the creation, you know, the creation has its own satisfactions and its own challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's been fun for me in recent years is that there is still an interest in this music that I did even for Evil Dead. I mean, before the pandemic, we did a live performance of the score in Melbourne with the Melbourne Symphony. So uh, to take that music over there to find out we had fans, to see the musicians that were actually really into the music, that's very gratifying as a composer. Um, And, you know, to be able to take it out and to show it to people and have them respond to it and, and enjoy it. Um, to create a balance between the two is great, but let's face it, you know, we, if you choose a life as a film composer, you're going to be in a room (laughs) creating and that's, that's your lot. And you, so you have to be okay with that. Um, because I think that I made the choice long ago that I wasn't going to be a musician whose life was going to be on the road, that I was going to have a family and I was going to have a job, if you will in music that enabled me to be around a lot. No, that's cool. And uh, going back to uh, your mentor, that teacher you mentioned earlier on the show, um, you know, I think teachers are great, uh, are, are so wonderful to help shape the creative minds of artists. And was there ever a piece of advice that you received that still sticks with you that puts you on this path? Well, that's a real interesting question. Um, I think that if you have, if you will, you call it the spark, if you have that within you, just being around someone who has dedicated themselves to the pursuit and has discovered these things along their journey and have a particular perspective that they've developed, right? Um, You're going to get that by osmosis. So I think, you know, just like anything, if you're around people whose game is high, they're going to up your game. And that, that goes for filmmakers as well. Any type of collaborator, real, really. All right, all right. I like, oh yeah, being in a room and it's like, it creates the ideas. I enjoy that. Uh, also, I wanna go back to the, the Melbourne thing. You revisited and got to kind of remake, redo, reboot the scores to these movies you did. Oh my God, has it been 30? 40 years ago. Uh, what's that like? What, what's the, coming back to the, your original starting point and getting to revisit and redo this and put it in front of an audience? What was that like? You know, it was just a little, it was an idea that I had. I get these ideas from time to time. But um, over the year, Evil Dead just doesn't, it, it just doesn't die, right? As you said, 40 <laughs> years plus, and it's still making the rounds every Halloween. Um, and it still appears high on the lists of the greatest what horror films of all time. And um, it occurred to me at some point that, you know, I it was my very first film score. It's probably, oddly enough, probably some of my best known work. Uh, and so there was, it was very strange to consider that. Um, and then was when I was, often approached to re-release the recording, 
um, it occurred to me to have this idea where, where that, if I had that same ensemble, what, what might I do with it today, right? Um, and some of the sounds, for example, that are available to us through the software today, what, how would I approach that? So I wrote a suite away from Picture. I took it to Mondo Records, who is, as you, you know, and probably your fans know, it's this great vinyl company out of Austin through Alamo Drafthouse. And they had suggested, oh, wow, why don't we do this to picture? And why don't we put out a concert? And we'll do two nights and we'll, we'll film it. And of course, they had, they really don't know how to do that. That's not their focus. Uh, but they put that idea in my head. So this suite that I wrote, um, I had turned it into the full score and took it to my agent. And they said, let's put on a show. So we actually did do it uh, in Los Angeles at the old United Artists Theater downtown LA, which is now the Ace, called the Ace Hotel. And we put on this fun concert. Bruce Campbell was our MC for the night. And we played it live to picture as folks are doing nowadays. And we had so much fun with it that uh, one of the companies that takes these ideas on the road uh, followed up with uh, selling it to Melbourne. And we were, we were off and running and probably had been pandemic not happened. We were probably performed it the following year and the following year. Um, but it was the idea of um, revisiting it and writing some different music for that ensemble because uh, I've done a fair amount of horror over the years and always get a full orchestra, which is wonderful. But I think the, the chamber idea is, is creepy, in many ways creepier. So I thought that uh, to prove it to myself and maybe somebody else that uh, it was also a valid approach. Uh, it inspired me to write that. And, and then the result, I mean, it just, it went gangbusters. <laughs> well, it was, it, it was fun. And it's a double album on Mondo and they've uh, sold a lot of them. And uh, in fact, you mentioned you're in Dallas. We were at, it was some sort of Comic-Con in Dallas, uh, again, before the pandemic. And uh, they had me come out for a signing and Bruce and Sam and Teddy were there. And so it was, you know, it was a fun get together. Excellent, excellent. And I gotta say that the also the um, Mondo version of Army of Darkness is fantastic. Uh, and it is from Mondo uh, with the Seattle Symphony. And I just can't say enough about Army of Darkness uh, because it is the number one personal favorite film of all time and one of my favorite scores of all time because the, the mix ingredients of the medieval and the horror and the romantic and the comedy and the drama. It's like every genre at once into this film score. And you did it perfectly. And well, thank you. <laughs> yes, it is a soup to nuts adventure for sure. When, because Evil Dead 1 and Evil Dead 2, and then years later, everybody got to come back for Army of Darkness for a bigger budget, for a big kind of like sweeping epic of a film. Can you talk a little bit about that Army of Darkness work? Uh, and then actually, did you actually get to collaborate? 
as much as you did on Evil Dead 1 and 2 and the other projects with Sam, Rob, and Bruce, as well as Danny Elfman, who did the one particular track? Actually, the most involved in any of the collaborations with Sam was the pilot for Ash versus Evil Dead of all the years of all the time, because he's usually so busy that by the time he gets to post, he's on to the next thing. So, um, and I think Army of Darkness, we were definitely in separate, we were different in separate cities. That was the other thing. Um, so I think it was, I was trying to remember, I was trying to remember, we were still tech, technologically not at the point where, for example, I could send him a video clip with a demo. So. Because this is 92, 93, right? Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, the distance and the technology and such. You know, I forget what kind of review process we had. There wasn't much. There wasn't much. But kind of. I kind of got a sense what what the animal was. You know, it was it was very, you know, it was sort of I saw it as, a, you know, the horror elements aside an homage to, say, the Harry and Harry, a Harryhausen film. The Sinbad, right? Sinbad, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And certainly the fight with the skeletons, you know. Yes. So. Uh, and so I, I approached it like that as, a, as sort of that sort of adventure epic. Um. And so I kind of knew in my bones what that sounded like and went for that type of sound. And then the horror elements, the horror elements were the horror elements, the uh, comic elements. There's that, I don't know, in the middle of the movie, there's this crazy three stooges with miniature, you know, little Puchin uh, bruises, ashes. So there's that. So it becomes uh, a cartoon, basically that's i mean it's, it's it really works well and when people haven't seen army of darkness i describe it as all genres of film and music coming together as one to make the perfect film and when they see it they're like yep that was a correct description <laughs> it's fun it's fun yeah well that was that's 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 another one it's a little more ambitious uh but uh that might be one that would be interesting to prepare again for a concert. That would be uh, fun. I, oh, be fun. Uh, I sure hope so, because I guess the 30 year anniversary is coming up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I would, yes, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, that'll be amazing. Um, yeah, and I actually, when you mentioned Ash vs. Evil Dead, I actually got to sit down and talk with Bruce about it. And he's, such a fun and he, he talked about the music and everything about that uh and coming back to the role but he's a a wonderful guy as i know you know um oh yes oh yes we just we saw one another recently we hung out um yeah yeah we I, together it was it's it's, pre it's pretty great um and let's 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 talk about uh, the new film hereafter by harry greenberger this amazing romantic comedy that just goes in a different direction with the sci-fi little horror and comedy elements uh talk about coming aboard on that film uh and doing the music for that well i was introduced to harry 
through uh, Angelo Badalamenti. Yes, who does David Lynch's stuff, right? All of David Lynch's stuff. And it turns out, we found out many years ago, that we are actually cousins. Really? Um, We only found out about that because we were introduced by my agent, because we have the same agent. Okay. Uh, but with within minutes, we found out that actually, you know, our heritages are from the same little town of 3000 in Sicily. And of course, drawing the, connecting the dots wasn't, wasn't that hard. Uh, so we've worked on some projects together over the years. And um, Angela was introduced to Harry and I think at the time, Angelo uh, didn't think he could take on the project. But as Angelo always does, is, is he said, but you know what, Harry, let's write a song together. There's always going to be a song with Angelo. He's, got a, he's a great songwriter and, 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 and a fantastic melodist, right? And, and of course, I can see why Harry was drawn to Angelo. I mean, he, he is his music is haunting and romantic and melodic, and it seemed like that would certainly be uh, a great blend for this music about, you know, the dating and the afterlife. Um, And so we met with Harry and kind of went over the film and it took a while for Harry to put everything together so that we could begin working on the film. And so, he and Angelo had written this song, um, which we didn't know what was, how that was going to fit in at all. Uh, but Harry wrote some lyrics, Angelo did the melody, and then it was time to do the score. So um, there were a few, there were like two cues that um, Harry did license from Angelo's catalog with David Lynch. And then I wrote the remainder of the score. Um, and what's great about Harry is a, he really, really loves music. He's really, really open. He, um, is really passionate about what he does and, um, had a great story. He had a great little story. Um, and so we, we worked on the music intensely for about a month. I think we had to, for some reason there was a, we had to finish it that quickly, but it wasn't um, because it's a smaller ensemble. I think I, yeah, I played all the instruments on the score. It's kind of an indie sound, right? Some of it's jazz influenced, um, which might've been, you know, part of the Angelo idea uh, that Harry was attracted to. And it's a story that takes place in New York City. So that seems totally appropriate, but jazz in a very offhanded way you know, more in a film scorey way than anything you might recognize as such. And um, it was it was a great opportunity to work with Harry because again, I find Harry very much like a lot of the filmmakers that I work with, that they love music and they might not be able to express uh, anything in musical terms, but that's really never their job. It's my job to be the translator and to try to evoke a language that connects us both. 
you know, so that I can, I can translate for them. And it worked out very well. As you know, Harry's very verbal. And, you know, he had some temp that I don't know that he had a lot of experience with temp because he was choosing a lot of things like, say, from there'd be like Pink Floyd things and David Crosby. You know, there'd be like these weird sort of pop things that really didn't didn't work as temp music at all. But you could maybe see that there was some sort of uh, starting point, you know, that you could maybe grasp onto and then find out the essence of what it was, whether it was the texture or the tempo or something, something to hook onto. And, you know, just kind of go off and do your own thing after that. So um, it was interesting because he's got some songs too. Uh, some really nice songs that work out well with the show, with with the with with the love story in and of itself, and writing in and out of those was part of the assignment. But I think that it's a really a beautiful, sweet story. It is, and it's a very New York story um, with New York language, the dialogue and the interplay and the questions and the existential questions asked 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 about being single in the afterlife um <laughs> you know there's a very hairy new york quality to all of it i think it's it's a very entertaining film in that way and i think people are going to enjoy it i think so too and they're definitely going to enjoy the score and i love that you uh, found your cousin from in the same town as Sicily. My grandmother's family and grandmother are from Sicily as well. <laughs> really? Yes. What, what, what part? Um, I'm trying to remember what part, you know what, I'm gonna have to get back to you on what part of Sicily, but their names were the Alessis. Uh, and they oh, came over in there, uh, came over and a lot of them are still in Brooklyn. So <laughs> yeah, well, New York obviously is, is the, is ground zero for, everybody yes but yeah a lot of them are in brooklyn but yeah no the, the we called her the sicilian godmother and she every uh sunday growing up she would make the homemade meatballs sausage you know right, the, right. call it the rest stuff that was that's what we did as a family every sunday <laughs> well and that's the funny thing is is that you know uh i understand angelo's music i believe on a on a genetic level <laughs> <laughs> There is a genetic thing to music. It really is. I, and I get it when I hear like these Italian scores or Italian music, I, you know, they just like the sound brings me back to that place. And I've never been to Sicily and I've always wanted to go and just uh -huh. hear the music, have the wine, have the food and just sit out there. One day it'll happen. <laughs> One day. Um, so let's get into some fun questions. Um, I noticed behind you, you have some instruments. What is the most curious? What is the strangest instrument you own? Oh, I, I've, got quite, I've got a lot of them. I mean, a lot of them are in cases. You see a little display cabinet behind me that I made up of. Mostly, I think, flutes, if I were to look at that, or some reed instruments. But, you know, having worked, uh, I guess it started with Hercule. Well, Hercules, Hercules, Xena, particularly, Brotherhood of the Wolf, 
for in you know um, Native American instruments. Uh, Spartacus again back to the Arabic world. Xena uh, for anything that happened in the globe, you know, because she her journeys were to India, to China, to Japan, to, and so the opportunity was, you know, those assignments were really kind of my degree in ethnomusicology, if you will. Uh-huh. So uh, generally, initially, I would hire these virtuosos on these instruments and then get curious and pick them up myself and, you know, get proficient enough that I could play film score shakahachi or film score, you know, <laughs> duduk. Uh, and, um, and it just kind of grew from there. Um, I couldn't tell you the the most unusual one. Uh, there's one that's back there that I think is a very interesting uh, instrument that I really haven't explored. And I'd never heard it on a film score, but I l- believe I recently heard it. Um, and it's called a, it's, it's a Vietnam, Vietnamese instrument. And it looks like a, a stack of bamboo pipes, vertical, different lengths. And you, it's a reed instrument and you close the holes to be able to articulate a particular reed you blow into this big thing and it's covers maybe it's diatonic and it maybe covers i don't know octave and a half so you play these sonorities with it right uh, these different sonorities um and it's really cool i've never really used it although i've sampled it um but i believe it's the theme to the Mandalorian. Okay. It's that instrument. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. And what is it called again? K-A-E-N, I believe. Okay. It's been a long time. K-A-E-N, that's amazing. I love that. And is that a didgeridoo behind you as well? Oh yeah, well, we, we got those, we went, we traveled. I took my family to New Zealand when the shows were being filmed. And then we took, we hopped over to Australia as if it were a hop. It's not a hop. You know? <laughs> That's a 19 hour like, flight. <laughs> we, well, well, once you get to New Zealand, it's, you know, it's whatever it is, it's five, six hours to Sydney, Melbourne. And it's another four or five hours to, you know, the barrier reef. But I picked up a few uh, didgeridoos there as well. Amazing, amazing. I, 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 ha, I have a didgeridoo behind me as well. <laughs> it's always fun to bring out at parties. <laughs> just just ripping <laughs> didge, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. It's good, it's good. All right, uh, next question. Besides the fish fry, back in the rock band days, what is the uh, most unusual place you uh, played uh, in a rock band or played on stage? And in addition to that, the coolest place. <laughs> the coolest place. I, it's so long ago now. I mean, it, it, it isn't as though, once again, these were, I could tell you some of the most fun places. Yeah, you know, fun places. Like, yeah, fun places. Um, before I made the wholehearted leap into film scoring, uh, my band had a brief tour of, of Europe as, as the jazz musicians do in the summer, 
right? Usually mm-hmm. those festivals are June and July. And what was what was really fun was playing in in uh, Pori outside of Helsinki, Finland, because it's this great festival on an island, and it's you realize that you know the country is shrouded in darkness most of the year, but we were there when the sun sets at 10 at 10 p.m. and comes up at 1 p.m. So this just means all these beautiful blonde Finnish people, this party, it's like crazy. You know, it's continual, and families and all that. And it was probably the more, most joyous festival I can remember. That's cool. Oh my goodness, do it in Finland. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, I have a serious question for you now. Um, very serious. Is it, is it mandatory to do an air guitar with Billy Gibbons in an elevator? <laughs> You're referring to the conversation we had prior to this. I was mentioning that we were in Austin. <laughs> uh, and I and just, you know, a week and a half ago, and I rode down the elevator with Billy Gibbons. And, you know, it's <laughs> unmistakable. It's the morning, right? So yeah. he's, you know. Kind of in his pajamas with the skull cap, and there's only one Billy Gibbons. <laughs> so I couldn't resist How are you? How are you this fine day, Mr. Gibbons? <laughs> they just gave you an air guitar salute. <laughs> yeah, no, you know I could have gone off on it, but I, I didn't. It wasn't. There wasn't that much of a conversation. I didn't think he was still coming too, but. Uh, that's great. That's great. Probably performing in the Fourth of July, but it's unmistakable. I suppose you know you're always surprised. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was surprised. I was a little surprised at how actually slight he is, and uh, perhaps how old he is now. But uh, but again, you know, I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen with actors. You know. Um, they're going, how are they even going to find the set? How are they even going to get to where they're going? Can they even walk? <laughs> and then the red light comes on and the light just shines out. It's, it's an amazing experience. So that's, you know, I think that, that that's a special gift. That is a special gift. Um, are there any particular music moments, music swells, music cues in films that have stuck with you over the years, not just from your own catalog, but other movies you've seen? I suppose there's, you know, there's these sort of watershed moments where somebody, some composer is doing something really different that you haven't heard or haven't had the opportunity to hear in conjunction with film. And um, and that makes an impression where somebody really steps outside the box, you know, I mean, for a long time, the sort of John Williams narrative approach to scoring was de facto and whether it was a romantic comedy or whether it was a drama or whether it was an action adventure music, the palette was pretty much the same and the devices used were pretty much the same. So when somebody steps outside the box, um, your ears perk up, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, 
early on, it would be things like scores like uh, Jerry Goldsmith, Planet of the Apes. Okay. Um, um, certainly moving forward when, when Thomas Newman hit the scene, you know, with something like the player, you know, the idea of including an improvisatory or what appears to, well, no, I kind of know it for a fact as an improvisatory ensemble in conjunction with an orchestra, you know, and having that with a very, very tasteful palette of sound design as well thrown in. You know, that was a mix that was new at the time and, and is still, you know, influencing uh, in its own ways, a lot of things even you hear today. You know, I think that sometimes it's the, um, it's about the filmmaker being brave. I mean, you know, Stanley Kubrick with 2001, with, with The Shining, you know, uh, not necessarily even using films, you know, film composers per se, but just that pairing. And same way with, uh, um, there will be blood, right? And the Johnny Greenwood stuff with the strings. It's like, wow, wow. Uh, here's this drama set in the in the in the late 1800s with Penderecki. It's like, yeah, that's yes. cool, right? Mm -hmm. That's nobody thought of that. I think uh, heard things recently. Uh, what Nicholas Bertel is doing with say Underground Railroad where you have essentially a, a very uh, beautiful, beautifully told story filmically, but yet there's these very well laid opportunities. Not, it's not like it's well, there's no wall to wall. There's just particular scenes that just go on visually um, and that the music is uh, so appropriate but uh, classical in its in its uh, influence, you know, which again is kind of throws it into this other world, makes it makes it very very otherworldly, and goes along with this sort of um, Garcia hundred years of solitude type of story, really, you know, the magical realism, yes, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, it, they're great combinations. And, and again, it, a lot of it has to do with the imagination of the filmmaker to allow, allow for that to occur. Right. And I love that you brought up Kubrick because his element of having the classical music with every one of his films is amazing, except for a full metal jacket, um, you know, which was, you know, the Vietnam pop music, rock music of the time. But, you know, when you mentioned The Shining in 2001, the, those scores are, that, that classical side you talked about is amazing. And is in particular with 2001 to really round this whole discussion up back to the beginning, uh, that main theme of 2001 Space Odyssey when the titles come up. Uh, one of the best pro wrestlers in the world, Ric Flair, that's his theme music every time he came out. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
it all comes it's back. It's there. It's there for the taking, I suppose. Right. 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 Yes. 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 For sure. He introduced Strauss to a whole new generation. <laughs> correct. 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 Um, and that that wraps up this episode. Uh, Joseph Loduca, thank you so much for coming on the show. The spotlight is on you now. Tell all the listeners, all the viewers, where. Uh, they can find you online, find your music. Yeah. Uh, gee, um, it, it's out there. You know, it, it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, the, the, you know, there's quite a bit on iTunes. There's quite a bit on, I haven't been as active on my site. I do have some new projects to uh, talk about. Harry's is one of them. Uh, the release of uh, Leverage Redemption on uh, Amazon uh, this month. And uh, right now I'm starting work on uh, Chucky. There's a series uh, Don Mancini is, is doing on Chucky, which is a combination. It'll be on Sci-Fi Channel and USA uh, because it has a YA uh, bent to it in that um, Chucky's let loose uh, on, in, in a suburban middle school. So... I'm very excited for this new series with the original with the with the crew coming back and oh I love that original score when the composer sings uh, it's just a great eerie composer and I am looking forward to your work and tackling Chucky very excited about this and hopefully yeah me too and hopefully we'll get to talk again when that comes out <laughs> okay yeah probably about October some we'll something like that. Amazing. Amazing. And then just for fun, we could get Harry in on it too. And it would be fun. <laughs> well, Harry, well, Harry, yeah. Harry, we should talk about hereafter. We should yes. Talk about for Let's sure. See. For sure. Um, but yeah, thank you again for joining uh, the celebrity podcast and uh, have a great rest of the day. So nice to meet you, Brian. So nice to meet you. Yeah.